Hi everyone. Welcome to the first Argus Ferris podcast of 2022. My name is Dipali Sharma and I'm the Ferris Markets editor at Argus. Today we will be discussing CME Group's newly launched fourth side INO derivative contracts. These contracts were launched on 10th of January and the opening day itself saw some trades go through. Portside Ino stocks currently stand at just under 160 million tons following a build up over the second half of 2021 when steel production in China came under pressure from government mandated cuts. Ahead of the Chinese New Year holiday which starts on January 31, restocking from steel mills has supported Ino prices both in the seaborne as well as in the portside market. Winter Olympics and the seasonal weakness in steel demand will be factors that play out in the coming weeks. And as we speak, expectations have emerged about stimulus measures supporting the Chinese economy, especially with the government keen to keep things stable this year. Omicron cases have also been detected at Tianjin and are already affecting transportation. Brazilian iron ore supply is expected to be subdued this quarter with major miners announcing production halts in recent days. In effect, within the first 12 days of January, we are already seeing a number of push and pull factors driving iron ore. In this context, I think it's an opportune time for the market to have more risk management tools at at its disposal and to discuss two such tools which is the CME's uh, newly launched fourth side ino derivatives i have with me today sachin patel who is the senior director metals at cme and also joining me is oscar tanberg who is the business development manager for global ferris markets at argus welcome both of you my question at the outset would be what role does fourth side ino pricing play for the wider ino market So I think as you alluded to in your introduction um the China market uh has two distinct markets there is the CFR market which is a seaborne traded market in US dollars and then there's a secondary market for landed cargoes once they have passed customs and so simplistically you could see these I guess as a wholesale market the seaborne one and a retail market where smaller parcels are sold in local currency the port side market is both a leading indicator um it's very highly responsive to local demand um but it's also responsive obviously to seaborne supply so it's very very quick um to reflect change to reflect disruptions to supply um uh, for specific products and so on it's also highly liquid um as a result of you know far smaller volumes being traded with average parcel sizes from around 5 to 10 uh, kt um, compared to obviously the far larger volumes which are traded when a cape size vessel changes hand uh, at sea the importance of this port side market has been growing in importance internationally as well um so historically this was very much a, a, a sort of local domestic market but the secondary market which uh, yeah so dominated i guess by large trading firms both chinese and international has increasingly been moving on shore um where this is partly a result of the increasing transparency of the seaborne market um it is become far more profitable to buy a large vessel land it break in several cargoes and then sell it at port but there's separate there is there's a number of other trends taking place and one of those is the number of mining companies who are setting up direct sales in RMB at chinese ports either directly or via um, an intermediary there's also a bigger picture there's a push by china to you know, for a greater role for its currency the renminbi um in price of commodities and iron ore 
So th these trends collectively um, are I guess, supporting the growing importance of this secondary market in iron ore. All right. Um, I mean, that, that's a very uh, thorough overview of the physical port side iron ore market. Um, Sachin, if I can bring you in, uh, could you speak to us about what the need for these port side derivatives is? Hi, Dipali, Oscar. First, a huge thank you to you both and Argus Media for having me on the podcast today. It's a real privilege to be able to talk about these new products and speak with Oscar about some of the development in this market in terms of the need for these derivatives. I think there are a couple of key reasons as to why we've decided to launch these contracts. Firstly, we can touch on what Oscar just mentioned about the growth of the port side market in the physical sense and a specific need for hedging requirements. So the port side market has started to have more of an impact on how the broader market prices. Oscar mentioned it already being a leading indicator in this space. And ultimately, it's a market which is similar, yet in a few ways, a fundamentally different market to the existing Seaborne benchmark. So up until Monday, 10th of January 2022, it's been questionable as to what efficient hedging mechanism there is for managing exposure to medium grade ore transacted port side in northern China. Uh, traders who have physical pricing risk in these transactions would potentially have to proxy hedge using adjacent markets, maybe ultimately wear some basis, which can be unpredictable at times. So these new contracts that the CME have launched are plugging this gap and will ultimately bring more liquidity and transparency to that port side iron ore market. So that's our first reason for launching these contracts, a very specific market need, which we are trying to answer with the launch of the derivative. Now, another more broad-based reason for listing these is on the product and market innovation side of iron ore. Now, iron ore is a huge physical market. And from the derivatives perspective, I would say it's certainly getting more mature with 10 plus years of track record and industry adoption, but doesn't yet seem to have the degree of maturity or longevity, for example, as the gold or the copper derivatives market. So for something which has been around for some amount of time, I think you could say that innovation in iron ore derivatives has arguably been a little bit light with the market largely focusing on the Seaborne benchmark and with a small handful of satellite products accompanying it along the way. So new and differentiated products such as China portside futures should be, I believe, a key step in building overall liquidity in iron ore derivatives and moving that market to a more mature state. Right. Uh, thanks for that, Sachin. And uh, Oscar, like, you know, as an observer of the physical market, uh, would you like to add to uh, what Sachin said uh, with regards to the need for derivative contracts? These new contracts um, address, well, they, they serve a growing, growing need from a growing number of companies who have got exposure to both the onshore and the offshore markets, so both the seaborne and the landed markets. And this growing number of companies who are trading both are increasingly international. Um, this contract will be accessible internationally. It has a few key differences from existing options. So most existing options for heading, hedging onshore material um, would involve domestic futures um, or perhaps OTC uh, options to a local broker. But this is the first contract which enables mainstream hedging of a mainstream product, um, which is directly yeah, comparable to the products which are hedgeable in the seaborne market. So it offers the opportunity to do a direct import of, of trade or hedge that, that spread between the 
seaborne price and the landed price. Um, it's also differentiated in as cash settled. Sachin, my next uh, question would be, uh, why did the CME uh, choose to launch two contracts and, and not just one? That's a great question. And the answer here isn't because we want to make things difficult for our customers. It's really down to what the market tells us during our validation process. Whenever we're considering a new launch, our typical process involves gathering feedback from our customers in terms of what product will be useful for the market. And then, of course, the particulars of what that contract should look like. And there's a long list of things for us to consider. Do we do cash settled or physical? What size should the contract be? What should the listing schedule be? I.e., How many months forward do we need? And currency is another one of these considerations and clearly a very important one to consider. So for China port side, we immediately had two choices which were apparent, a renminbi contract or a US dollar contract. Argus's PCX index is assessed in renminbi on a wet metric ton basis. Argus also have the PCX seaborne equivalent index, which adjusts for VAT, port fees, moisture content, and converts into US dollars to give a dollar per dry metric ton price. And what we found during customer validation is that there were pretty compelling arguments and indeed support for both versions, depending on what the specific trading need was. Our renminbi contract, the PAC, that's the uh, product symbol um, that we've uh, given it, PAC, Portside Argus CNH. It's a reflection of the true Portside price, which Argus are assessing directly every day, and thus may serve as a more suitable hedge for physical transactions at Chinese ports. The US dollar contract, however, PAU, is potentially a more easily accessible contract for several of our clients due to being denominated in dollars and thus gives a more like-for-like -like price, which the existing seaborne uh, market um, is uh, compared to, and thus may be more appealing for anyone looking to trade portside versus seaborne spreads, all with the same pricing conventions. And we felt that the appetite for both currencies was strong enough during our validation to go ahead with listing both. And now our customers will have the choice depending on what their specific trading needs are. All right. Thanks, Sachin. Those sound like, you know, strong reasons to have both the contracts uh, listed. Following up from that, could you take us through briefly how Argus actually compiles Sure. Yeah. Um, but it's actually, so I think as Sachin alluded to, it, it's actually more like one index, which is published in two separate forms. So the, you know, the underlying index is a Chinese yuan price, which includes VAT and port fees. And that's um, on a wet metric ton basis. And that is assessed from transactions and indicative values. So it's a, it's a volume weighted average and it reflects trades taking place at Qingdao port, um, but also includes nearby Rijiao. And the index itself, specification-wise, looks very much like a PB Fines type product, which is the most liquid uh, medium-grade product that are traded at both Seaborne and at Chinese ports, um, except on a 62% basis. And that has a number of advantages in that it mirrors very, very closely the, uh, yeah, the specification for existing offshore or seaborne futures contracts so it makes it directly comparable and that's also the rationale behind publishing uh, you know, the separate us dollar version of that price and so effectively the the second index uh, against which the other futures contract settles is a direct conversion of that chinese renminbi price 
um, into a dry metric ton basis, uh, stripping out you know, local charges and local taxes, such as VAT, port fees, etc., and obviously converting for the currency. Right. And of course, anyone listening in who wants, uh, you know, to go through the details of our methodology, they can uh, they can find it uh, on on the Argus website as well. Um, Sachin, coming back to you, um, what kind of participants are you expecting to see uh, trading these uh, these contracts? This part has been really, really exciting. As our conversations with clients have progressed over the last several months, we've honestly had a great reception from, I would say, all of our major institutional and commercial customer segments in the lead up to launch. I think we envisage this market would start out with uh, involvement from participants who are active with the existing iron ore derivatives markets and particularly customers with physical exposure to onshore prices and some of these groups that oscar mentioned earlier like trade houses mills producers um, some of these segments have in fact been part of the first 700 lots that traded in the first week now going beyond perhaps the more obvious segments of who would be trading an iron ore market of course, liquidity and liquidity provision is a huge part of building any successful derivative. So price making from, for example, proprietary trading firms who have an expertise with making markets um, in iron ore derivatives, as well as sell side institutions who have been quite instrumental in developing the seaborne derivatives market and attracting a wider audience. So these groups would be natural customers uh, that are interested to get involved and provide liquidity to their clients. And then finally, the buy side. So I think investor participation in iron ore certainly exists, but for a market which has several years of track record and is such a large physical market and is so China-centric due to the amount of iron ore that is consumed by China, I think Oscar mentioned two-thirds of seaborne cargoes. So we do believe that there is more that can be done with the buy side and their involvement in iron ore derivatives. I think CME are clearly in a great position in this regard, having such a huge number of investors in our client portfolio globally. And these new products, we believe, will resonate with that market as they are offering exposure to yet another commodity in our already large commodity portfolio and can potentially act as a diversifier against other exposure. But we also think that this will have an appeal to investors due to the fact that it's a China-centric commodity price. But with all of the familiarity of the rules and regulations of trading any other product, which is listed on the COMEX exchange. So I think demand for exposure to onshore commodity prices is potentially something that continues to increase in the coming years from these investor groups. So China port side iron ore contracts will hopefully be a really strong addition to the portfolio in that regard. And picking up from what you mentioned uh, about the importance of liquidity, obviously, for any derivative uh, contract, uh, Oscar, with regard to iron ore, uh, you know, DC already offers uh, very liquid futures. So in that context, uh, what role do you think uh, the CME port side futures can play? Well, I think probably the first thing to note is that both contracts are very different. Um, obviously, one is cash settled, the CME contract. DCE, like uh, most Chinese commodity futures, is physically settled um, as a delivery mechanism. And within that detail as well, there's another key difference, which is the product that the contract reflects. So 
due to you know, the specification requirements that um, for physical delivery that DC has, it effectively trades or it trends, um, it follows the trend of the lowest grade product which meets that criteria, uh, which tends to be a low grade iron ore such as super special vines. Um, whereas obviously the new CME contract will settle against uh, an index which reflects the price of medium grade product. And that actually opens up opportunities. Um, it means they're two separate contracts with two different, you know, serving two different needs. And I don't, in that sense, I don't think they directly compete. I would actually argue that perhaps they complement each other and that opens up new trading opportunities um, you know, for quality spreads at Chinese ports. Um, another you know, differentiating feature would be the, the way that liquidity um, is typically pooled in a domestic Chinese contract, such as the, the Dalian futures. So most Chinese futures will see you know, the bulk of liquidity pooled in one contract. Um, it's usually three different months throughout the year. You know, as settlement approaches, it will then roll on to the next um, you know, most liquid month. And through doing so, it, it offers a hugely liquid um, hedging yeah, hedging tool, um, for particularly for a directional hedge, the price of iron ore. Um, but I'm expecting that the new CME contract will probably look more like existing uh, iron ore, seaborne iron ore futures contracts, whereby it's probably more the prompt months, um, which reflect the time period during which those cargoes will be landed and sold, that will probably see more liquidity and you know, thereby offer the opportunity to trade uh, time spreads uh, between the more prompt months. As well, so yeah, I, I don't really see these um, contracts competing. Um, obviously, there, there will be some overlap in the customer base, um, and those customers will, you know, I'm sure, be able to find opportunities trading both of them. Um, yeah, but equally, there'll be some customers who, maybe particularly local Chinese companies, who may find it harder to access international futures, and uh, likewise, international companies who. You know, currently find it difficult to trade onshore uh, and therefore will benefit from having uh, you know, a contract such as the new CME contract. And and just, uh, you know, zooming out a bit, um, Sachin, I'm sure you've worked on, uh, you know, a lot of different derivatives uh, over the span of your career. Um, could you tell us a bit about what makes some derivatives more successful than others? There's perhaps no magic one-size-fits-all recipe here, but certainly a few factors that come into play. And the very most successful launches would tick most or even all of these boxes. I think it has to start with customer appetite. Does the market need this? And this can't be one or two folks. It needs to be a critical mass of clients that need this product. And certainly from a commodities perspective, that initial validation tends to start with the commercial clients that have these exposures on their books. So we need to ask ourselves and the market, is this product required as a risk mitigation tool for those that are actually in the physical markets? Another thing is that this critical mass of clients ideally represents a relatively varied customer profile who have different types of exposures, therefore generating natural interest from both sides of the market, both the long and the short side. Confidence in natural hedging interest from both longs and shorts would also potentially help us find liquidity providers who are willing to take both sides of the market. And the availability of liquidity is, of course, a crucial ingredient to the success of any new launch. Now, beyond customer interest and the availability of liquidity, there are some other things that come into a successful launch. 
I think timing is definitely one of them and something that isn't often in our control and can involve a little bit of luck. But by timing, I mean timing a particular launch when there is a buzz around that particular market to help generate more interest in the early days or timing around when the market is either stable or volatile. And then looking further into the future, how do we find the next COMEX Gold or COMEX Copper or NYMEX WTI? Uh, that can often come down to the mass appeal of that contract. And that mass appeal can be dictated by the accessibility of the market and how well it's understood. And I think this is one area that Ferris is really interesting. As I've mentioned, huge physical markets, but still growing and developing in the derivative sense. And arguably without that mass appeal, of some of those aforementioned commodity benchmarks listed on the CME. So we as an exchange will continuously work on education to the market on the underlying contracts, as well as building a better liquidity and thus making the product as accessible as possible. And we work on these aspects throughout the life of a contract so it can be an attractive proposition to the widest possible audience. For example, going beyond the physical customers and getting on the radar of investors, arbitrages, CTAs, etc. I think that mass appeal is what creates the most balanced market and what can take overall liquidity to the next level. So I guess to summarize, we have customer appetite, liquidity, timing, accessibility, and mass appeal. These are some of the factors which determine the success of a particular contract. And in China Portside Iron Ore, I believe we have the basic ingredients necessary to make these products our latest success. That's really interesting, Sachin. And I'm going to make a note of liquidity, accessibility, and timing uh, for the next time I'm writing an article on, on derivatives. Uh, all right, my last question, and you know, it's a question to both of you. Uh, I'll, I'll start with you, Oscar, and then I'll give the last word to Sachin. Um, in terms of the usage of derivative contracts, um, in the Ferris segment, we've seen that it's picked up over the years, but obviously, uh, you know, it's still limited if you compare it with uh, a lot of the other commodities. Uh, why has that been the case? And what do you think needs to happen uh, for the adoption to expand? Uh, I'll, I'll go with Oscar first and then uh, Sachin. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, that's a. Firstly, that's a. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, um, and I, I think a lot of the answer probably lies in the way that the fiscal markets are priced. Um, so, you know, looking back just over a decade, I, I guess, or that's when we really saw the big shift from long-term contracts in in iron ore markets, and up until that point, really, risk management was. You know, there wasn't really a huge need for it because every year. Uh, steel mills would set the price of their raw materials with their suppliers and that would then be fixed for the year um, they would then sell their steel to their customers at a fixed price with a you know with a margin baked in um, and you know that within that environment there wasn't a huge amount of um, you know, need to manage risk uh, obviously there were still trading companies but they were very much you know, looking to look at, looking at geographical ARBs or looking to sort of buy low sell high traditional trading methods but as we've seen the the way the physical markets change, um, you know, shifting to a floating basis with the iron ore and coking coal linked to indexes, huge amounts of liquid of uh, volatility uh, creeping into the price. Um, obviously, we saw a very very rapid uptake in risk management tools for steel making raw materials, uh, which kind of followed that change in the physical market. 
I think we're now at a really interesting place where in many parts of the world, you've seen steel markets or markets for the, for the finished product, um, I guess, trying to cling on to the older long-term contracts. Um, you know, so that for consumers remains their risk management tool is a, is a long-term contract, but it's becoming increasingly incompatible with volatile raw material prices, which are still floating. And you know, consequently, we're seeing uh, increased appetite with, or at least increased interest in, you know, derivatives for finished steel as well. And I think as well, that's uh, it's another reason why yeah, it, it's really exciting to see a range of new products coming on. I mean, the port side iron ore is something that, you know, really that's been, yeah, there's been a lot of demand for that. Um, right. And Sachin, uh, you know, last word to you, same question, um, you know, for the ferrous segment, what's your outlook in terms of adoption of derivative contracts? And do you see the pace picking up in the future? Yes, it's a resounding yes for me. I definitely see the segment picking up going forward. It's such an exciting part of the market to be working on. And my outlook for ferrous derivatives in general is a strong one. Everything that Oscar said relating to how the physical market operates and how that evolves plays a huge part in getting these contracts in this segment off the ground. And we've seen that from 10 plus years ago in the iron ore space with fixed contracts moving to a more floating basis. And Oscar has mentioned the Northern European hot roll coil contract as another recent success. So examples of the evolution in the physical market contributing to the success of a futures contract. Now, let's not forget that ferrous derivatives are still a relatively young market. Ten plus years of track record in iron ore comparing to several decades in other more mature metals derivatives markets like gold, platinum, copper, aluminium, etc., Development of markets takes time, no matter what the underlying is. And we've already spoken about some of the ingredients we need for the success of a particular contract. I think Ferris is so interesting because of the size of the physical market. It dwarfs the size of other metals in the CME portfolio. But as is easily seen from the different stages of development in these markets, size doesn't necessarily guarantee immediate success for a group of futures contracts. Of course, in Ferris, you have a great degree of variability between regional physical markets, different shapes, grades, etc., which arguably make a true global iron ore or steel benchmark a difficult thing to create in the same way you can a gold benchmark, for example. But even more striking to me is how little the masses are exposed to even hearing about steel or iron ore prices. For example, these days, and really for several years now, it would be impossible to flick through mainstream financial news channels on TV and not know within maybe a few minutes where the price of gold is or where the price of oil is. But that certainly isn't the case yet with something like iron ore or rebar or HRC. So getting to that stage where the ferrous segment gets more publicity is perhaps the holy grail to aim for as a transparency that can bring will help in attracting the broadest set of customer groups which will be hugely beneficial for the segment and ultimately liquidity begets liquidity i would say that right now i think ferrous is something that's maybe considered a little bit niche or even exotic uh, compared to other commodity benchmarks and the barriers to entry are still that little bit higher those are the barriers that we as an exchange, I believe, are tasked with to break down going forward. And just going back to the size of these underlying physical markets, 
I don't see why the ferris space can't be a really, really crucial segment for the CME metals business going forward and well into the future. All right. Um, it's it's definitely a good time for the INO market uh, to have more price risk management and trading tools, uh, given the array of factors that seem to be you know driving prices across grades and across uh, the seaborne and port side segment uh, uh, these days. And I think especially uh, it's exciting uh, for the port side segment of the market that's only going to grow in stature uh, in the coming years, uh, given the trajectory of that segment. Uh, with that, I'd like to thank both uh, Sachin and Oscar for this very interesting discussion. And for anyone who's listening in, if you have uh, further questions, please do reach out to us. Thank you and have a good day, everyone. Mm -hmm.